You're listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Sam Wong, who has 30 plus years of successes and failures in the startup ecosystem, which he utilizes to train and help entrepreneurs with execution, fundability, fundraising, strategy, product market fit, product management, finance, operation, legal talent development, and founder wellness. On today's show, we talk about when a company is just starting out, how does it plan on what to execute? How should it plan? We also talk about when a company is acquired, how should an employee negotiate his new role and benefits with the acquiring company? Or does he even have an option? And what is the meaning behind a founder's wellness is underappreciated? This and much more in today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now at the very end, Sam offers a special promo for all our listeners. And don't forget to share this great information with your network. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Sam, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm extremely excited for today's episode. A lot of people out there know that great friend of the show, Wendy, has introduced some amazing guests in the past, including Alan Tien. Actually, the list goes on and on. Well, she introduced to us today Sam Wong, who has this extensive background with startups. In fact, they even met at an event where they're helping startups and entrepreneurs. I just want to go right into it. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your career up until this point? Sure. Glad to be here. I started off many years ago in corporate IT. After working in corporate IT for a little while, I went to a nonprofit as labor of love. It was a great experience where I learned a ton. Then I left that and went into management and technical consulting. That was a fantastic job opportunity. I really enjoyed it because you got to work with great people on great projects. But when my wife and I started a family, I couldn't do the consulting travel schedule. So I left that and I went to a startup for the first time 22 years ago. I saved myself the travel, but the hours were crazy. The stress level was pretty high. So I've done five startups, one stint as a CEO, one as a CTO, three as a technical VP. Of those five startups, two of them have shut down, three of them exited. And actually, we went through another experience where one of the startups was about to be acquired, but the acquisition didn't go through. So that fell through at the 11th hour. We can talk about that a little bit more if you're interested. Right now, I love coaching and teaching. I have the opportunity to do that. So I work as a startup CEO coach and an instructor. So we're going to have to dive into everything that you just said. I mean, the fact that you're at five startups, that's incredible. Most people don't even last a few months at one. A lot of people say that they learn more from their failures and their successes, but can we go into the successes first? Let's hear some of those from those three companies. And then maybe after, can you, if you're okay with it, because I know some people might not be, tell us about the lessons that you learned from the failures. Absolutely. Happy to share all that. I try to be very transparent because I think if I can save someone from making the same mistakes I did, then the world's a better place. But about the company's successes, I'm going to probably warn you in advance that I have a lot to share here because I do believe in sharing enough detail to be able to help people to implement. I've been in lots of situations where there's people who teach and train and they tell why or what to do, but don't tell how. 
I listened to a couple of your podcasts earlier and I was really inspired and I thought it was very helpful to hear Ravi Balani and Essie Mawadi. They basically double clicked on the detail that they were sharing to give people more specific instruction on how to do something, whether it be fundraising or how to target investors and things like that. So since they set the stage, I hope to follow in their footsteps and do the same. Well, the fact that you said double click, that proves to me that you've listened to these in extent because after Ravi, I added that term to my vocab. So please go into as much detail as possible. Our audience, that's what they love. Right. So I will say this. And the first thing I think about lessons learned on the successes is talent matters. The funny thing is, is that everybody says that and pays it lip service, but very few people actually invest to create a good talent infrastructure for their startup. I've been in industry for over 30 years, and I can say from tons of personal experience, successes and failures, that great talent can make a mediocre business succeed, but mediocre talent can make a great business fail. So talent matters. We see the impact of talent all around us, but in the startup space, we don't seem to apply the lessons learned that we have all around us. I think it's important to me to recognize the role of game-changing talent versus just players on the court. Maybe I can kind of give a couple of specific examples. One would be Hollywood, unfortunately, but I'm a big fan of the movie The Imitation Game. It's a movie about Alan Turing, and Turing was a computer scientist, basically, back in the World War II timeframe in England. And he was charged with He's famous now for having built what most historians consider to be the very first computer. That computer was used to break the German Enigma encryption machine. It was like, largely thought to be unbreakable at the time. And I love this movie because about seven minutes into the movie, Alan Turing, classic research academic, goes in to interview with a commander, Denniston, from the British Royal Navy, who's running this project. And they don't really hit it off. Turing's not really very personable, and he's got some social challenges. And in two minutes, Commander Denniston says, you just set the record for the shortest interview in military history, and is about to walk him out the door. But Turing actually reveals that he knows a lot about what's going on. He ends up getting the job anyway. Alan Turing, uh, if you watch the movie, you see he built a machine that was able to break the Enigma encryption code. And by having the detailed plans of what the enemy was going to do, they were able to respond in advance. And he's largely credited with playing a major role in winning the war against fascism. So that's one clear example of how one person who's an amazing talent is able to make a difference in actually achieving success. Let's look at the business world. I'm going to go back to another company I was at, which I don't really count as a startup because I joined when it was 900 employees. That's the consulting company that I mentioned. But here in the Bay Area, there were only 20. I remember at that project, I was brought in as a mid-level manager, uh, an associate director. And one of my first projects was to do a telecom project there. The consulting company was an amazing company, Cambridge Technology Partners. We hired some of the best and the brightest from MIT, Harvard, Stanford, engineering grads. These were phenomenally talented people. If I look back from some of the CTP alumni, they're all CEOs and VPs all across the US and across the world. But I was just cutting my teeth. This telecom project was amazing because we were competing 
to do some work for a telco. The telco, for regulatory reasons, couldn't take what was being done. Their information systems on the local side could not be used for what they were trying to do enter the long distance business. So they had to rebuild all of the applications. Well, it turns out that on the local side, they had a team of 200 people, an outsourced team of 200 people working for two years at a cost of $140 million to build what they had. We, with the excellent talent that we had, did 50% of the work with 40 people in seven months. So if you do the math on that, our cost was $11 million versus 140. If you do the math and say, okay, we only did 50% of the work, so 22 million, that's about still six and a half times more productivity than the other team achieved. We were able to, when we were severely under the gun, because we had phenomenal talent, just have a lot of productivity. And that skill set and willingness to work hard got us over a ton of humps. Another situation for the first startup, we were rushing to launch the website. It was an e-commerce site. And there were some problems on the back end and the code just wasn't working right. I remember leaving one night kind of wondering if we needed to, to slip the deadline. Well, I come in the next day and there are my coworkers still there. His name's Bobby. He had spent all night working and he said, everything's fixed. It's working now. I looked at him and said, what? We thought we were going to miss the deadline. He just pulled an all-nighter. Okay, went home about 11 a.m. and such. And after he went home, all the coworkers are sitting there looking at it. It's like, he just saved our bacon. So that's just another example of how talent, great skill really does win the day. I had another project. I can go on. So stop me if you're bored. Yeah. So there was another situation where we were implementing a global network for a client. It involved deploying like 25 individual points of presence across data centers all across the world. So we had to deploy a bunch of firewalls and we had, the client was going to go with a bunch of Cisco gear. They were used to checkpoint firewalls. Unfortunately, when they tested it in their testing environment, their application broke when we installed the Cisco firewalls. So they didn't know what was going on. Cisco tech support couldn't figure it out. I happened to do a lot of troubleshooting. So I went in there to inspect. We captured the packets across the network and we looked at it. And since I was a firewall specialist, I knew how the Cisco firewall worked in the packet processing pipeline. I was able to identify it's probably in step five or step six of the packet processing pipeline. I called up my friend who happened to be a product manager at Cisco and said, hey, we got a problem. We got a large deal that's going to be, that's, that we're going to lose if we don't solve this problem. That was a Friday night at about nine o'clock. Saturday night at 12.30 a.m., I get a phone call from a Cisco engineer. And he says, hey, I heard about this. Tell me what's going on. So I spend the next hour and a half explaining to him what's going on. I send him the packet traces and such. He says, I see exactly what's happening. Cisco happened to implement a protocol slightly differently than Checkpoint did. Cisco made it a little bit more strict. Checkpoint was a little bit more loose. And he had his team build an on-off switch that said, turn off that extra checking and allow this packet to pass. So we were able to salvage a half million dollar project because over a course of one weekend, we were able to go in and see exactly what had happened and solve the exact problem. Incredible. All right. Now, is there more successes or can we talk about the failures, what you learned there? Ultimately, the, lots of stories about how much talent matters. Okay. It's important to have a, a strong talent infrastructure where you hire well, develop well, recognize well, and retain well. 
I would say there's several other things that, that are part of the successes. So if, you, if it's okay, maybe just continue a little bit more. I would say preparation matters as well. Bobby Unser is a three-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. And he made a quote a while back that said, success is where preparation and opportunity meet. When you look at it and break this down, there's two ingredients, preparation and opportunity. I think it's really important to assess who has done great preparation. And sometimes when we look for talent to be able to join our companies, we just look for people who've achieved certain outcomes. And that's, of course, one important evaluation criteria. But you have to look deeper and see, did they achieve that outcome because the environment was strong or because they were particularly good themselves? If you are a stock market investor during a wild bull market, you can look like you're a phenomenal moneymaker. But I don't think it's really, you miss the actual capability because everybody's making money during the big bull market. Can you make money when it's a bear market? I look at these things and see that I think preparation matters a ton as well. People who've built the raw skills to be able to, when their name is called, really execute and deliver. I'd say another thing would be metrics matter. Okay. And that's boring. People are like, uh, okay, this is a back office dashboard type thing. But the fundamental principle that I encourage lots of startups to apply is in order to manage it, you have to measure it. You measure it to improve it. You report it to accelerate it. So metrics can be just basic blocking and tackling, but it should be baked into your business, whether it be if you're building software into your software platform to be able to gather the low level data that you can pump into an analytics engine to give you high level dashboard numbers. In essence, I would say CEOs are pilots of an airplane and pilots need instruments to be able to guide what they're, where they're going, especially if there's inclement weather. So if you don't have good metrics, you won't be able to really make a good assessment of where you're at. I know that metrics enable you to show instead of just tell. And I think in investing, that's very, very important because modern day investors oftentimes look to see where are your metrics. It's easy to say, to tell someone, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. But metrics or detail would be more convincing you say, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest, but here's the inventory of all my climbing gear that I've acquired. Here's the name and contact of all my climbing team, including my Sherpa. Here's the list of the teams that this Sherpa has successfully led to the top of the mountain. And here are my photos from base camp at 17,000 feet. I haven't made it to the top of the mountain yet, but Mr. Investor, we are making very good progress. Would you invest in us? Because you see this, this progress proven by these metrics that I've shown you. So I think metrics really strengthen your case. And in fact, Andrew Chen, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, pretty much said the same thing back in 2019. He said, for pre-seed companies, you bet on the entrepreneur. For seed stage, you bet on the team. Series A, you bet on the traction. Series B, you bet on revenue. Series C, you bet on the unit economics. Series A, B, and C, traction, revenue, and unit economics. Those are all based on metrics. You can't show traction. You can't show revenue or unit economics without low level traction. We know that metrics are very important and important to have a strong focus on it. So in, in our coaching and training, we focus on giving tools, ready to use frameworks for people to implement their own metrics for stuff like investor pipeline tracking or sales pipeline tracking. And then we also do the same thing with financial modeling. You had, I think it was Brett Sharenow, 
who talked about the importance of financial models. I was loving that. We have this set of tools where we have this gigantic revenue model, this gigantic financial model that Brett was talking about. So the, all of his advice, we'd already built it. So this is a model that took 500 hours and four years to build. So it's a color by numbers tool that allows you to do bottoms up monthly analysis with a hiring plan tied to your revenue model with assumptions-based parameters that you can just turn the knob and it you know, dials up or dials down the amount of gasoline that you have to feed the engine with growth assumptions. You can say, what if I have conservative to aggressive growth? All that stuff. And then it kicks out pro forma, income statement, cash flow, charts, instant visibility, and fast management decisions. I mean, we'll definitely talk more about the tools and the resources and your company later on, but let's get back to the, your history. Let's get back to your stories of your experiences that you can share. Now, I also remember when we were talking before that one of the companies that you entered into was run by just a group of engineers and you were an outsider stepping into this kind of already established ecosystem. Can you talk about an outsider coming into a company, coming into a startup, how they can influence, change, adapt? How can they add value and move that company forward? Yeah, that is a huge challenge because I think even Ravi mentioned that when in his work over at Stanford, a lot of the academic focus tends to be on the innovative, the tech, where the maybe the more boring content like sales operations, it tends to get a backseat. Engineers tend to overvalue their skill set. I'm an engineer. I understand I'm guilty of the same thing. I remember one of my former mentors way back when pounded it into my head. You don't want to build the best technology. You want to build the technology that works best. And that was actually something that was very hard to be able to learn how to apply. But there's lots of stories about how the best technology didn't win, whether it be the Betamax versus VHS videotape battle way back in the day. Betamax was a better format, but VHS won the day. Or the Motorola 68000 versus the Intel 8086. Any who tried to actually program these chips, the assembly level, the 68000 family was easier. Okay, I remember trying to learn the Intel assembly language, and it was tough. The other thing I would say here is trying to install that type of culture where it's not just about the engineering, it's about the marketing, it's about the sales. That can be challenging in an engineering-driven company. Seasoned sales guys matter as well. It was tough because there have been lots of situations where the engineers tried to run sales and it just didn't work well. Okay? There was one company where the engineer kept highlighting the beauty of their solution it was a hardware solution. So they kept talking about how fast the lights blink and how much switching fabric was in the backplane of that device. It didn't really matter so much. What mattered was, was this going to be a risk managed solution? If the customer decided to buy this newfangled solution, would they potentially lose their job? How are you going to alleviate that risk and concern was much more important than how fast the light blinked on the device. Installing that is challenging, but it's important to kind of go back to some of this is basic business blocking and tackling, but that really matters. And if you can help the founders understand that engineering is important, but it's not sufficient, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient, then I think the company will be stronger if you can kind of get it over that hump. So that's very interesting how 
engineers or people might be focusing on the wrong thing. And that kind of leads me to another question. A lot of startups write into the show, they ask me about tips for fundraising. Past guest Ravi Balani from Alchemist Accelerator, I know you're familiar with him. He gave some amazing information on this in episode 51. But as we're talking right now, I, I have to think, the founders that are asking me these questions on fundraising, are they asking me the right questions? Are they focusing on the right thing from your expert opinion? When I go to startup events and founders or entrepreneurs learn that I'm a startup CEO coach, they immediately ask me, can you help me with my pitch? And the answer is, yes, I could, but I think that's getting the cart before the horse. Because I do think that Ravi's comments and everything he said were phenomenal. They were wonderful. They're exactly spot on, very valuable. The challenge, though, is that fundability matters more than fundraising. And I would advise that startups should look at funding strategies rather than funding tactics of, did I, was I clear enough in the pitch or whatever else? When you focus on building a fundable company, then it's easier to raise money. It comes faster and the terms are better. And the terms matter a lot because a lot of founders can get over fixated on the valuation of their startup when they get a term sheet. Of course, that's important. But I think even SC Moadi mentioned that she values terms more than she does the valuation. That's more important. In fact, there's a situation with FanDuel. FanDuel is a UK-based company that got acquired for $465 million. Sounds like a phenomenal outcome. I mean, you're a founder, you work your tail off, and you sell your company for half a billion dollars almost. But it turns out those founders got zero. So what happened was that when they had signed some of their fundraising agreements, they gave some of their investors, one, liquidation preference which means basically that the investors get head-of-line privileges. They eat first. So after they're done eating, then you can pick through whatever's left. The other thing that the investors had was drag-along rights. Those rights allowed a few members of the investment team to say, we're going to go down this direction and you can't stop me. So because the liquidation preference and the drag-along rights were granted, they were able to force the sale of the company to benefit the investors, but the founders got nothing. And they ended up filing a lawsuit as a result and such. So I think the focus on funding and pitching, I understand why that's there. I would encourage people to focus on building a healthy, fundable company first. With that, focusing on a fundable company, what should they be discussing, planning? How should they be going about what they want to execute? How should they plan this? And what are the normal problems that they might run into? Execution is very hard. In fact, I think execution matters a ton. Uh, so it's very good that you're asking this question. In fact, if you look back, Bill Gross, chairman of Idea Labs, did an analysis of 200 startups. And he concluded from his, his methodology, his research analysis, that the number one thing that affected the success of the startup was timing. But right behind it was team and execution. I would put before you that most founders can't control the timing that much. The founders of Zoom could not have predicted that the pandemic would come in 2020, which resulted in their service taken off like wildfire. What you can control is your team and your execution. When it comes to execution, I would say this, there's, there's no secret recipe. You can't go out and say there, go out and execute well, right? That's not an actionable statement. Execution is about doing lots of things well. 
There's no secret recipe. And the analogy I might give is that execution is kind of like being the chef for a royal court. You're not just charged with preparing one meal. And that one meal can't just be a single course. You're doing multi-course meals multiple times throughout the year. So you almost need more of a cookbook. If you have a cookbook and you're not a great chef, it can be daunting because there's so many recipes you have to do. I remember when I was trying to impress my wife with my cooking skills when I was dating her. So I got this book, Joy of Cooking, and I made this huge mess in the kitchen. It was funny. I guess the food turned out okay because she married me or she, maybe she was just didn't have very good taste buds or something. I remember that I needed a lot of help and it was really hard. Bring on the day today of the advent of meal kits. Hello, fresh, gobble, blue apron, etc. They've had their ups and downs, but the concept is helpful in that they give you everything that you need to be able to execute well with a simple cookbook and recipe. So I would say execution itself, look for frameworks, look for a model on how to be able to do things and trust people to find and entrust capable people to run each component of the startup function. So wait, Sam, you're a startup CEO coach, and this is just coming to my mind right now. While we're talking about executing and planning, a lot of startups with mentors, when it's a simple problem, no big issue. They've faced it before, they have an answer for it. But when it gets a little bit more complicated, a little bit more a superficial problem, things just break down. Why is it when the problem gets tough, the mentor may not be there? Why is it that complex problems are a challenge? I face this myself. I was a first-time CEO with startup number four, and quite honestly, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I was learning for the first time, and I made lots of mistakes. I ran into tons of problems, and my friends, who I had a very strong support network, tried to help me a ton. I got introduced to various advisors, etc. Many of those conversations went something like, tell me about your problems, tell me what you need. They'd ask one or two questions, it would go five minutes, and then i proceed to get 30 to 60 minutes worth of feedback. The challenge was these guys didn't have the chance to prepare, nor did they ask for any preparation in advance. They didn't really dig deep. So some of my problems weren't simple. The soundbite advice was not something that was going to solve it. What made the difference for me was when I ran into another person who was very different in his approach. We spent two hours together talking, and he asked, obviously, 15, 20 questions. And we went back and forth. After the two hours were done, then and only then did he start giving advice. And it made a huge difference because he understand the detail. Then I could actually work with him together. And what I found was that the soundbite advice I'd gotten was pretty much worthless because either I had already tried it, it wasn't applicable in our situation, or there was something else wrong with it. When I sat with this other mentor who spent the time to really learn what was going on, that's what made the difference. And that's what I really tried to do because many startup mentors today spend just five hours a month with their startup. If it's only five hours a month, you might be able to do a meeting every other week and then some follow-up outside of the meeting. I think relationship by itself limits how much those mentors can do. They can be very good at what they do, but the structure of the relationship, I think, is flawed in many situations. If you have a phenomenally great founder who you just tell them, climb Mount Everest, and they figure it out and they can do it, great. That's sufficient. 
But I find that most founders need a little bit more help than just climb Mount Everest, stay safe, bring warm clothes. Now, speaking of problems that founders might run into, to that first question, we talked about your five companies that three were successful and two weren't that had problems. We never really dived into those two that weren't successful. Can we circle back and can you go into a little bit more detail about the problems that as a founder or the team might have come across in those startups and what you learned from it? I think one key lesson was from startup number two. We had a technology platform that allowed two enterprise applications to integrate very easily. It was an early version of what Zapier does today. We were based on web services technology and UDDI. It was the rage of the day back in the 2000 timeframe. But for whatever reason, we had chosen not to highlight that. In fact, we downplayed that because I think some of the logic was we didn't want Microsoft to crush us because that's what they were doing. So we went it took this under the radar marketing approach and it ended up not working out. There was some problems where when we saw one of our competitors make some of the same decisions, we went and said, hey, they're doing that. We must be on the right path. The problem was both of us were lost. Okay. So they shut down and we ended up shutting down. And the sad thing was, this was great technology. One of the larger companies in the space, BEA, acquired our competitor, a company named Crossgain, for $30 million. Unfortunately, Crossgain had no shipping product, no customers, and a lawsuit pending with Microsoft because they had tons of Microsoft employees. BEA was local here in the Bay Area, and Crossgain was in Seattle, so they also had a distance issue in integrating the companies. We were local. We had a shipping product. We had revenue. We had no lawsuit, and we were right down the street. But since we didn't really highlight that we were in this space, this company didn't think of us as potential acquisition candidates. So we made a mistake in the marketing approach. I think, in addition, I would say experience matters. There was one startup that had four Harvard grads, including three that were Harvard MBAs, one MIT grad, two Stanford folks, but almost everybody, including myself, was early in career. These were folks who, with a little time and a little seasoning, would be phenomenal contributors, and many of them have become that. Many have gone on to be VPs at name brand startups. That was only my second time as a VP. I thought I knew what I was doing, but now looking back, I was like, I didn't, I still had a lot to learn. So the experience matters because the talent that you have encapsulate that experience. The talent, again, matters. And we had, there were a number of startups, not just this one, that had some talent problems. There was one startup where we had a techie who, I go back, there's a couple of situations. One was a techie, one was a sales guy, and one was a sales executive. For the situation with the techie, he was charged with running the database and he was still learning his trade and he just wasn't a good fit. HR was very hesitant to part ways because there's the attorney said, hey, there's tons of risk. Well, we built a case that says, hey, this is not a good fit. It was very objective. It wasn't personal. We weren't mean to the guy. We let the guy down gently, gave him a package, took care of him, made sure he had healthcare coverage for his family, and we parted ways. That was the right thing to do because the, he just wasn't a good fit. There's another situation where we had a sales guy who wasn't passing muster. When we let him go, our sales went up, even though we were down one player. So because everybody was taking time to help this guy out, they weren't doing their own jobs. And there was another situation where we had a sales executive that wasn't a good fit. He had some good 
talent, but not in a startup space because he didn't have startup skills. He had big company skills. The senior team was afraid of letting him go because we were in the middle of fundraising. They thought it would look bad if we lost a VP level person while we're fundraising. I challenged that notion because yes, we lost a guy, but and if anybody of the investors ask, we say, well, we had a person who wasn't a good fit and we made the super difficult decision to amicably part ways. Being a CEO is all about being willing to make the hard decisions in life, not run from them. Yes, there would have been some eyebrows raised. Some of the investors say, hey, what happened? The clear and truthful explanation was he wasn't a good fit. We decided to amicably part ways. He was the highest paid person in the company. All right. So that was a drain on resources as well. But when you realize, okay, this isn't good, I'm going to clean up my own mess. Okay. Those are the hard decisions that comes into play because ultimately these people who are playing the roles, their judgment matters. I can't tell you how many times key decisions were made in various startups or consulting projects that ended up crippling the company. If you make enough crippling decisions, the company will die. If you make enough good decisions, the company has a strong chance of success. And those decisions are made by the people and the judgment that these people have. So you had made the comment, and it really resonated with me, the team of Harvard MBAs, Stanford MBAs, all these people that were early in your career. And on your website, when you go to the homepage, it does say in that video, it takes more than a single success to really learn the ropes in the startup space. Now, can you dive more into that sentence, that comment? I absolutely believe it because there are many situations where somebody has some good fortune and has a phenomenal exit. There are stories of many founders who, because they got a billion dollar exit, suddenly are a celebrity, but they've done it one time and only one time. There was an instance where a founder had two successful exits, but company number three and number four ended up dying horribly because he had only known success. He didn't know, he didn't tasted the mistakes and he hadn't had an opportunity to learn from them. So there was another situation where a company got a big fat exit and he got a lot of visibility because congratulations, you got a billion dollar exit. But that founder's second venture, I heard about what they were doing. I immediately saw that's not going to work because they had this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. About six months later, they had this major pivot, laid off half their staff, and they went in a completely different direction. It's not just about what I would say uh, being lucky one time, because a lot of times it's really, maybe you just happen to buy the right stock and your portfolio goes through the roof. But can you do that, especially in a bear market and not just in a bull market? Those are the things that I think it matters a lot when you've lost money and you realize, oh, okay, don't do that again. Okay. I certainly made a ton of those mistakes and you know, my checkbook shows it as well. Now you just mentioned something about someone having a billion dollar exit, but then their third or fourth company maybe not doing so good. Well, I mean, when I travel outside of Silicon Valley and I tell people I'm from here, I work in tech, people just automatically assume it's all glory. Do you have any experience that you can share that maybe to elaborate on that, that maybe what people hear in the news and reality maybe aren't really as aligned as some people might think. Yeah, it's the sad truth of the matter is, even though I love being in the startup space, it's actually very, very hard and pretty risky. 
because 95% of startups either fail or dramatically miss expectations. There was actually an analysis done. In fact, we could do the simple math ourselves. The average salary for a senior staff engineer here in the Bay Area, according to LinkedIn survey, is $194,000. So it's just under 200K. In five years' time, if you are a, at that level, you'll get a million dollars in salary just from doing a decent job and not getting fired. Well, a lot of people chase that carrot on the end of the stick. And they think that, ooh, if I left my job, I can become a startup success bazillionaire. When the math really doesn't demonstrate that, you actually have to be very lucky and the moons almost have to align and you have to have just the right team to execute well. The, the reality is that startups are hard. And I know that when I was doing startup number four, Again, I was the first time CEO. I was pouring all sorts of my own time, energy, and money because it felt like every month I had to give a pint of blood and a pound of flesh. I remember one time where we had a situation. We had a customer uh, project where a customer just didn't pay us. They owed us a quarter million dollars. They just didn't pay us. There were no complaints. There were no issues. They were just growing so fast that they changed accounting systems, lost our bill, and it took months for us for them to finally pay us. Five months later, we finally got our check. So that really hits you when you, you need that quarter million dollars to make payroll. There was another situation where, I think I talked about the situation earlier where we were deploying firewalls all across the globe. There was a situation where that project eh, ran into some problems. Some of it client issues, some of it our issues. I remember we were trying to deploy some gear into Mexico. And we shipped it down there, but the recipient refused to sign for it. FedEx shows up at the destination. Here's your packages. But the recipient wouldn't sign it because it had some export paperwork that he wasn't familiar with. So we refused to sign it and the shipment didn't get delivered. The client blamed me because I was the guy who shipped it when I could easily point the fingers and whatever. It didn't matter who was right or wrong. The problem was the gear wasn't there. The deployment was delayed. And the top of running the company... I actually had to bend over backwards. It's like I had a second 40-hour-a-week job, and the client was threatening to sue us. I had personally guaranteed the finances of the company. So a lot of the bank agreements I had signed, if the company went down, I would lose my house, quite likely. Okay, so my stress level was through the roof, and it was really challenging. I remember what it was like because in order to solve that problem, I had to call the U.S. consulate in Mexico. And the consulate happened to have a staffer there. I don't even remember his name. The guy dropped everything to help me. He found a friend who ran a company that did copiers. And he said, okay, this guy will sign for it. So just pay him. So I wired the guy $2,000. He sends a van over to FedEx, signs for the paperwork, drives the gear across to the colo, the data center across the town, drops it off, and then problem solved. He makes $2,000 for about an hour's worth of driving. But in order to get to that point, I mean, I had no idea the U.S. consulate even had this type of services in the Department of State. Thank you so much. You saved my bacon on that project. Now there are other problems I still had to go solve. Those are things where I was fretting like crazy because I thought we were going to lose my house and my kids would not have a place to live. Those are challenges. I mean, I tell you, my wife and I, she was concerned. And there were lots of times we didn't see things eye to eye. Those are the realities of what happens. And thankfully, we had a strong support network who helped us. We got marriage counseling together. But if we didn't have that, I'm not sure, honestly, I'm not sure I'd be married. And you know, sadly, 
those are decisions that have a much broader impact. I happen to know a number of founders whose wives did leave them. And I can tell you this much, you can have lots of jobs in life. You should only have one family. Sam, is there anything about founders wellness that we should know more about? Absolutely. This is actually a trending topic in some spaces. What I would say is that mental wellness is very important for every founder because the amount of stress that you go through is very high. I would actually compare it to a professional athlete. They have very demanding schedules and they're constantly expected to be at the top of their game. But when they're playing, they go through injuries, small or large. First off, I would say when an athlete gets injured, nobody says you're a lousy athlete because you got injured. They just say, go to the trainer, get your time to recover. When Kevin Durant ruptured his Achilles tendon, nobody said, oh, he's a lousy basketball player. I don't think we should conclude that, which about founders when they have injuries as well. Okay. The sport that the founders play is startups and business. It's not an athletics sport, but it is demanding as well. I would say that if you look at the National Institute of Mental Health, that some of the surveys and statistics say that about 18 to 19% of the population has some type of anxiety or depression, some type of mental need that needs to be addressed. Dr. Michael Freeman at UCSF did a study of entrepreneurs and found that entrepreneurs are 50% more likely to have a mental health condition. If you do the math, that's like 27% of entrepreneurs can suffer from anxiety or something like that. That's a large population. And even if you didn't have a challenge going in, the startup is enough to give you that challenge coming out. I think we need to destigmatize. And I very much respect John Zimmer, the CEO of uh, Lyft. He went uh, with Lori Segal from CNN and talked about depression. The fact that there was a point in time where Uber had raised like 10 times more money than Lyft had. And all the pundits were saying that Lyft was an also ran. They may not survive. Uber's going to crush them. He, by his own words, said he was in a funk for uh, several months. Thankfully, John had, one, the courage to be transparent and vulnerable. Two, he had, he talks about it, he had a great support system who helped him through some of those challenges. And I will say, if I look back at some of the situations I've been through, when I went through some of the pain with startup number four, the client who wanted to sue us, the customer who didn't pay just because they lost our bill or whatever the problem was, or maybe one of our employees made this dramatic mistake. I went through my own challenges. And I'm thankful that one of my friends pulled me aside. We went on a walk one day and he really wondered if I had, I needed to see a therapist. And he, remember he said that to me and I bristled. I was quietly offended because I thought, I don't need a therapist. That's for people who are weak. I didn't want to appear weak. I didn't want to spend the time because I thought I had some preconceived notions about what it meant to see a therapist. I didn't think that somebody could help me with some of my challenges because the reality was I was irritated, easily annoyed to the point where it was affecting all of my relationships. I finally gave in, swallowed my pride and said, you know, the potential, what I felt like might be shame of seeing a therapist was not worth the real pain that I felt right now. So I found someone and it really ended up helping a ton. He helped me even to rethink of our relationship in that I love sports. I have no problem with people coaching me. 
what I had to reframe was seeing a therapist was just like seeing a coach, somebody to help me with the challenges that life is hard, startups are hard. It made a ton of difference. I ended up getting a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which basically means I'm a perfectionist. Some people say, well, that's not that big of a deal. It is to me, especially if you're my wife married to me. Having this challenge meant I didn't know how to turn off. I would go to bed and I'd still be solving problems in my head. I couldn't sleep. If I didn't get good sleep, I'd get headaches. I'd get headaches, I'd get irritable, and I'd snap at my wife and my kids. And I didn't want to live that way. It wasn't healthy. I had to learn how working with my therapist, how to be able to have tools and to rethink. If a project at work wasn't going well, it was imperfect, but I didn't need to necessarily make it perfect. If a client just wanted a stick figure, I don't need to give them a piece of art worthy of a museum. I needed to learn how to redraw boundary lines, reframe what motivated me, as I was talking about earlier, and learn how to have the right balance. Because it doesn't matter if your startup is wildly successful if you are alone. It's much better to have a, your family, your friends around you. We all want connection. I would say that connection is worth a thousand times more than any startup success that people can achieve. So I encourage people, let's focus on making sure that we help one another as founders not to run into some of these problems and to learn healthy boundaries. Your family, your kids, those are all very precious and important. I remember the interview with Roz from Flowwater when he was talking about they don't tell you about how founders will spend Friday, Saturday nights by themselves, not because they want to, but because they have to. And they've given up all their friends, their family, everything. And yeah, hearing stories like that. Let's switch it to something more positive. <laughs> From my understanding, one of your companies was acquired. Yeah. Can you talk about that? How there's adjustments in roles, how that feeling was, that whole situation? Yeah, I will say this. Certainly we'll answer the question, but not all of it is bad if you have the right support network. So I encourage founders, entrepreneurs, get people who don't just advise you about what business decisions to make. I care about the lives of the people that I help. Because to me, people have poured their hearts and lives into me. I want to do the same for others. So back to the question about the experience being acquired. I do remember a couple of situations. One is the importance of due diligence. That is something that most founders have no idea what that's all about. I've gone through due diligence four times. Basically, due diligence is the process of, let me figure out every bad thing about you to see if there's a reason I shouldn't acquire you. And it's important because an acquiring company doesn't want to potentially take on some surprise risk. Due diligence is a horribly stressful time. The outcome of the entire company, all the employees can rest on how well you do the six-week due diligence cycle. And it's a lot of stress, a lot of work. When we were going through the acquisition by Cisco, Cisco acquires eight to 10 companies a year. They have an entire team, an entire process. They've got the integration down to a science. They had 200 people working on the acquisition process. We had seven. So the amount of work that 200 people generate for seven people is just off the chart. And we had to really have our processes clean and to be able to get through that and such. That was the due diligence cycle itself. But then 
after you do get acquired, there's another adjustment, especially if you get acquired by a larger company. We had to completely change, especially me, I had to change how I approached work. I was used to fast-moving, nimble startups where decisions are made in an afternoon and you go run with it. What I didn't realize going back to a large company for the first time in 15 more or more years was that working in a large company, it doesn't move like that. Decisions are more of a lobbying approach. It's like working through Congress. And I'll be honest, I didn't have that skill. I didn't have that muscle very well trained. I remember a situation going into Cisco where we were at an integration meeting and one of the guys was trying to figure out how do we take the product to market as a Cisco product, not just as the independent product. And what ended up happening is we knew exactly what to do, but it ended up the guy was kind of throwing up all these roadblocks. I didn't understand why. I remember sitting down and talking to my boss at the time. He mentioned to me, Sam, uh, what you were saying was right, but the unintended consequence of moving so quickly was that you made him look bad. Oh, okay. And since he looked bad, he was trying to tell you, get back in your swim lane. Instead of, unfortunately, doing the right thing for the company as a whole, this individual kind of threw up some roadblocks and we had to take six extra months to get around some of those roadblocks. We got around them, but you know, those are things that I had to get adjusted to. I had to learn that, okay, I have to lobby. And that's not something I was used to. So after the company got acquired, it looks like you had to, and probably your whole team had to find a new skill set. In that acquisition period itself, how does the employees that are getting acquired in the new company, how do they negotiate kind of their new roles, their benefits, their packages? How does that all work? I'll be honest, I don't think I'm the expert on this because I think I did this poorly. So I can at least tell you what some of my mistakes. One of the things that happened during the acquisition was that for various reasons, I didn't go in with a very high job title. There were lots of folks that, who were founders in the company and they basically got the, the roles and the titles and such. I didn't understand what that would mean and I didn't understand that when I went in with not a director level title, that my credibility was non-existent. So I had to work extra hard to build that credibility before I started saying we should do this. When with a non-director job title, just saying I should, we should do this, most people kind of like, okay, there are four directors on the call and you're not one of them. So I didn't realize how much extra work it would take. I think looking back in hindsight, I should have probably made the case that, not that I wanted to, the title wasn't that important to me. I didn't realize though how important it would be to get things done. In hindsight, I was happy that we were acquired. Everybody was celebrating and such. It's just that post-acquisition, it was hard. I know a lot of startups, you have titles like ping pong champion <laughs> you know, or, or captain get along with everyone or some, some random things that you're like, I don't, I don't know how this relates to anything. I know but... a guy whose title was Jolly Good Fellow. Oh, I want that title. <laughs> okay. Now you've shared with us, I mean, your family, your experience, share with us right now what you're working on. I am working on helping founders to be able to succeed. The current mechanism is coaching and training. I'm building training classes that I can basically use to scale because as one person, I can only affect so many different startups and founders. So I thought 
building the premium training classes would help. Some people have asked training, why, when there's so much free content out there? Well, I looked at the training space and I saw several problems. One was that there's too many choices, actually. You do a Google search, you get millions of hits on different pieces of startup advice. And it was disorganized. It'd be almost like getting a, uh, a business book in single page increments out of order. The book is a great book. And if you can figure out how to assemble the pages and make sure you have all the pages, you get the complete story. But the, a lot of the content is just sound bites and disorganized. The other thing that I saw was non-credible sources where sometimes people who have a little bit of success, maybe in traditional business, would try to apply some of that to startups and it just didn't work. You were successful as a jumbo jet pilot, but a startup needs a motorcycle racer. But a speed of decision-making is very different and the level of risk is very different. The other problem that I saw was insufficient depth in a lot of the training where I'd see founders watch a 20-minute video and then suddenly feel like they're ready to make dramatic decisions that affect the next five years of the company. I felt like founders need a complete story, and sometimes they didn't realize they knew enough to be dangerous, but not enough to do it right. So I felt like there was a gap in how much depth was there. The other thing I saw was some bland content. I've seen some dictionary-like slides. You know, It's like, okay, if I wanted to attend that type of learning experience, I'd curl up with Merriam-Webster or something. The other thing I saw that was a challenge was non-actual content, where people literally telling you exactly what to do, but not helping you with how to do it. So what I thought, having gone through so many problems and so much pain, having a structured journey and a structured approach from a seasoned operator who's willing to go deep, focuses on visual training, because studies have shown that visual aids increase learning by 400%. In addition, we try to package purpose-built, ready-to-use, color-by-numbers templates to help people implement the things that we teach in the classes. So that's our focus at this point. And then, Sam, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what's the best way to go about doing that? And actually, I have to also announce to our audience, Sam has been gracious enough to offer our audience a 40% coupon for anyone that writes a review for this episode. So go on iTunes or any other podcast platforms write a review, take a picture and email me just so we can verify it to you and we'll send you the promo code. But Sam, tell our audience how, if they want to find out more information about you, how to go about doing it. Yeah. So we have our website at fundablestartups.com. You can learn more about us from there. I do tend to focus a lot on LinkedIn for my communications professionally. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Those who are interested, I did write a book, 21 Secrets of Successful Startups. You can also get a lot of more of the stories in detail, the book itself. I do encourage people because I think it's an easy, low-cost way for people to just get some of these lessons learned. Great. We'll have the links for the website and the books on Amazon, I'm guessing. It is. And you can also get an ebook and a quick tip. The Apple ebook version is much better than all the others because Apple just does ebooks better. We'll have those links in the show notes. And Sam, once again, I got to thank you for taking the time to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. And I want to thank Wendy for the great introduction. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.